This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of amazing founders and creators doing incredible things in business and beyond. Today is my chat with Michael Serbinus, which first aired just a few weeks ago on another show I host called Shopify Masters. Michael is the founder and CEO of League, a technology-focused health company. With more than 1 billion of exits under his belt, he's known as an incredible entrepreneur who's built transformative tech platforms across several industries. A few notable ones for you, Serbinus founded and built Kobo, probably the most notable competitor to Amazon's Kindle. He also founded and built DocSpace, Critical Path, and going way back, was one of the first 10 employees at Zip2 alongside, you guessed it, Elon and Kimball Musk. To listen to more episodes like this one, you can search Shopify Masters, wherever you get your podcasts. And with that intro out of the way, let's get right to this great conversation with Michael Serbinus. Let's start back when you were in grade nine. I believe in grade nine, and I think grade 10, you win a number of science projects. Is this the genesis of your entrepreneurial career, would you say? Uh, For sure, it was uh, the beginning of me being passionate about building things and and solving hard problems. Um, You know, the idea that you can take a crack at doing something really tough and uh, get rewarded for it was uh, was really exciting. And I saw that people could get also really excited about the same thing that I was excited about, you know, building some new thing, some new innovation. Uh, and so for sure that was the genesis and um, it fr- frankly opened the doors uh, to my work at Microsoft during college, and then, you know, later the the big decision to move to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. So you go to Queens, right, for engineering. This is undergrad. Did you have any side hustles at the time during your studies? I did. I had a side hustle, which was, you know, coding for money, essentially. And uh, I worked on a video game called Gone Fishing. And I was using genetic algorithms and neural networks. So like, I guess, you know, today we would just use the term AI to, um, to code where fish would go in this, fish, in this fishing game. And I remember that was worth at the time 10,000 bucks for, I don't know, six, seven, eight hours of work. Um, and I thought, hey, this is pretty cool. I could keep doing this. a lot of pub money yeah undergrad and those days that was like an incredible i was buying rounds yeah um so let's talk about microsoft so fall i think it's your senior year you get an offer from microsoft to go there post-grad but as you say you take a different path why did you choose to go the startup route and my second part to this question is what did your parents think about this decision yeah so i had had that experience at Queens, uh, you know, all joking aside, the uh, gone fishing side hustle um, was really part of a bigger thing, which I was doing for Microsoft. And and I had that gig lined up post school. I didn't go to any of the job fairs and any of the things that 
some friends of mine were doing. I just thought I kind of had that in the bag. And one day I got a call from Kimball Musk, who I met in my freshman year. And Kimball was like, hey, my brother and I were doing this uh, business. It's on the internet. It's amazing. You should come and join us. All your work at Microsoft, you, you could be a huge asset to the team. And I already knew what I was going to be making at Microsoft. And Microsoft at the time was, I mean, still is today, hugely reputable. But at the time it was, you know, it's still in its exponential growth phase. It was exciting. I had had the opportunity to meet Bill Gates and Nathan Marivold. So I, I, I had access. And Kimball, on the other hand, had a company he was doing with his brother. It didn't really have a name. It didn't really have a product. And it actually didn't really have any funding. Uh, and it was the promise of options, which I didn't really totally understand. We didn't cover a lot of, uh, you know, stock options in engineering physics. <laughs> right. And uh, and I don't know, it just sounded exciting to go to California and to go to Silicon Valley. And I got some great advice at the time from my mentor, who was actually my boss at Microsoft, a uh, guy by the name of Ken Nickerson, who said, listen, there will always be jobs. Um, you need to decide based on what you think you could work hard at, have fun at, and you know, really be passionate about. And the money will come, don't worry about the money. And so that was enough of a push to take the job and move to uh, Palo Alto uh, with Kimball and Elon. You take some gone fishing savings with you. Did you have <laughs> free rent? What was the scenario? I, to be clear, I burned through the gone fishing money in a few weekends, uh, maybe maybe more than a few, maybe a month of buying rounds. Um, but um, they uh, they offered up a uh, apartment where a bunch of us lived. Kimball and Elon's cousin uh, Peter Rive uh, later went on to uh, build Solar City with his brother Lyndon. So me, Peter, uh, another Canadian, we all lived together in Mountain View. And, um, and we were fed. So, uh, so that was a plus too. And then eventually we did start getting paid a little bit. Um, we might've missed the connective tissue, but I believe you and Kimball were in the same residence at Queens, were you? Yeah. So we were in the same residence. We met in my first week at Queens because he was my floor, uh, supervisor, the guy that's supposed to supervise and make sure Guys like me don't take down 92 smoke and fire alarms. And uh, <laughs> hypothetically, of course, uh -huh. there was never any proof, uh, you know, put anybody in danger. Uh, but yeah, that's when we met. Got it. Um, okay. So you take this job with Zip2. You go to Silicon Valley. How do you explain this to your parents? How do you explain what Zip2 was as a company? Oh, I mean, I couldn't explain it because um, I didn't know what it was. It was a company on the internet and like the registered incorporated name was Global Linking Information Network. But I hadn't- This rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Not a lot of marketing expertise there. Sure. <laughs> early days, but like, I just didn't know. So I couldn't explain that. All I could say was the Microsoft job was still there if I wanted to go back. 
and I was going to go to California to the heart of, you know, technology, innovation and in Silicon Valley. And I was going to build something and be a part of building something on the Internet. That did not land. What made it worse was when I first uh, flew to San Francisco from Toronto, my dad dropped me off. I had like all my worldly possessions with me in a couple suitcases. And that day I got rejected by the customs uh, or border agent. And I had to call from a payphone, tail between my legs, call my parents. My dad had not gotten home yet. There was no cell phones. I had to call. My mom picked up the phone. She was incredibly worried. And I had to call and get a ride back home. And so that little, that turned out to be a bump in the road. I later got my visa and it worked out a couple of days later. But yeah, they were not confident. Okay, so you become a part of this first initial team at Zip. In 99, the company is sold for around 300 million to AltaVista. You've said in the past that, quote, building companies is a team sport. End quote. What else do you think are core principles of a successful startup? So I think it starts with this greatly overused word uh, vision. Um, and to me, what it means is you need to have a very strong and, and powerful imagination, uh, imagining the future of the world that you want or you want to create. And, you know, you you are constantly filling in the blanks, coloring it in, trying to make it happen. And, and so if you don't have that sort of powerful version of the future that you are aiming to create, um, I'd say, you know, it's a, uh, it's going to be an exercise in futility. Um, the second is really, you know, the mission, another really overused word, but over the years, it's come to hold, frankly, a lot of meaning for me around, you know, who your customer is, what value and what you know, what does that actually mean? What value will you actually bring to them uh, in a way that is unique and differentiated? Um, and then lastly, how will you do it? And the third very overused word, which in those days, uh, it was a big learning, but I kind of thought was, you know, a lot of BS uh, uh, culture and values. You know, it's not the what or the why, it's the how you do things, how you play on the field of, of competitive play. Um, you know, I think those three ingredients are pretty essential and were, were learnings that I took out of those formative years of, at Zip2 and then later at Docspace. Do you think for founders that are listening to this and asking themselves whether or not it's easier to raise money with a vision, mission, and the how articulated versus say finding early product market fit, and generating revenue, what would you say? I mean, certainly some revenue is always good, but I've seen examples of, you know, companies that show early revenue and and even some form of cash flow profitability, but never make it past first base. You know, you don't ever hear of them past year one or year two. Um, you know, the, the, the scope and the size of the vision it does matter. Um, you know, it, it connects to the total addressable market or the TAM and the opportunity 
in front of you. You know, the mission and in particular that piece of the mission, you know, who's your customer and what value do you uniquely bring to them? If you can't articulate that, but you have a bit of revenue, uh, I, I think that revenue will be short-lived. Um, so of course, product market fit is uh, important, getting to some revenue and some repeatability, all that's great. But if you don't have those strong fundamentals, uh, I think, you know, I think you're going to run into some trouble. So you mentioned Docspace, Mike, you get busy on Docspace right after you leave Zip2. This is circa 1997, I believe. You later sell to Critical Path in around 2000 mm -hmm. and you stick around and work with Critical Path post-exit. How do you look back on your time there and what would you say to founders who have some sort of earnout that requires them to stay around post-acquisition? So for me, I look back at Critical Path as my business education. Uh, in those years, frankly, everything went wrong. You know, the, the bubble burst. We sold into primarily telecom and large enterprise. Mm -hmm. They stopped buying technology, or at least they slowed down considerably. We were a public company in Critical Path, we end up having misstated earnings. That turned into an SEC investigation, oh. NASDAQ delisting. Um, we end up shutting down of 77 offices, the majority of them, and rationalizing products from like 100 products down to three product lines. It was a pretty massive trial by fire MBA. So I share that and provide that as context because really, you know, the big takeaway that I got from that experience was I learned a ton. And I don't know that I could put a dollar value on that learning because frankly, it's immeasurable and really it allowed me to do all the things that I did next. That's the positive story coming out of my experience there. I do look back on it and, you know, entrepreneurs I think regularly do this. You're always rewinding the tape and mm. maybe evaluating old decisions and simulating, would I do it again? Would I do it again in these different contexts? Because those years were the years that Facebook and a whole new generation of companies were created coming out of the fallout of the bubble bursting and the kind of mini recession that occurred after that. So, you know, was that a missed opportunity? Yeah, probably but was my value out of all that time in the earnout incredible? Yeah, of course. Would I have done the earnout a little differently? Yes. But if mm -hmm. I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't have known to do that the next time around at Kobo when I did the earnout much differently. Okay, we'll talk about that in a moment. So I want to take a moment and thank you, the listener, for tuning into our conversation today. Go ahead and give Shopify Masters a follow wherever you're listening and leave a review with your thoughts on the show so we can keep making episodes you love. Mike, let's talk about markets for a moment because you mentioned sort of rewinding the tape and you've been through a few bubbles. Let's say the first being 2000, 2001 with the tech bubble bursting, uh, financial crisis of 08 and 09. And where we are now, given what's happened post-pandemic with inflation where it's at and interest rates where they are, are you concerned that the worst is yet to come? What's your outlook here? 
So I don't know that you could be an entrepreneur without being incredibly optimistic. I am mm -hmm. the eternal optimist. And you're right. I've been through a bunch of these other bubbles and uh, inevitably I always see the good in what comes out of them based on the experience that I've had bubbles and times of disruption and dislocation present opportunities for change and and accelerating those changes, perhaps with technology that's been around for a while, but hasn't had its moment or perhaps with business models that just no longer work and are ripe for disruption. So I'd say a challenge of, you know, being on my fourth company today is I almost know too much. Mm. And, you know, I wasn't tracking inflation or tracking elements of the market, you know, back when I was just getting going with Docspace. Whereas today I do pay attention to that. And, you know, there's a there's a part of me that's like, we do live in this, and you've heard this term, VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. I feel like the world is just, it's just constantly changing and there's just new challenges all the time. And the successful entrepreneurs of today have to be even more resilient and more adaptable to the change that's in front of them, recognizing that these are the moments where the biggest opportunities present themselves. So opportunities for change, disruption, these business models that you see as potentially innovative um, under the backdrop of sort of the VUCA acronym, which industries do you feel like are most ripe for disruption? Well, I do spend a lot of time in healthcare for a reason. And it's just, it's incredible. I mean, I've been at it with League for a little over eight years and it's even more clear to me today, now that I actually know quite a bit about healthcare, just how ripe for disruption it is. Um, I think the last you know, 18 to 24 months have only exacerbated some of the problems in healthcare. Mm -hmm. We do not have the number of doctors we need. The cost of care has gotten significantly higher and all the trends around um, chronic disease, diabetes, heart disease are just as relevant and pressing as they were, you know, five years ago, if not more so. I was talking with someone this morning that shared, uh, this is a partner of ours that shared upon testing, you know, thousands of people, you know, off the street, uh, about a quarter of them are out of band in critical me measures blood pressure, blood sugar, and they need intervention right away. And a surprisingly big percentage of those people had no doctor. And they present a ticking time bomb, whether it's for their own pocketbook, for insurance, for the government, and for society. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've said, and I've heard you say this before, that healthcare should and will look a lot more like Netflix and less like cable TV in the future. So when you talk about League, how do you describe the problem that League is solving? Yeah, the fact is that as a healthcare consumer, navigating and using, consuming healthcare is quite complex. It's fragmented. It's hard to know where to go or where to go when. And the 
the initial investments made in technology to make this better have really only made it worse. So in the last decade, we've seen an explosion, a virtual explosion of point solutions, the first wave of innovations that all help solve or improve pieces of the healthcare experience, which has just made things more complicated for the end consumer. The end consumer needs a better way. And so what League does with our platform, we help accelerate that better way uh, to become reality. So we are a platform and eventually all point solutions and every other industry give way to platforms. We're a platform that helps accelerate that digital transformation um, and frankly, a more consumer centric transformation of healthcare. And like Netflix, people expect, consumers expect services they use to be personalized to them, leveraging their data to deliver a personalized experience. I don't want a one size fits all healthcare experience. I want one that is unique to me mm-hmm. and is going to help me. And so that is uh, a key part of the value proposition of the league platform is we're going to help you get there faster, accelerate that transformation, and we're going to deliver an experience that is, you know, a 10x improvement, leveraging data to drive personalized experiences for everyone. To my knowledge, your post Series B, uh, post 75 million raised thus far, you have hundreds of thousands of consumers across the US, Canada, and the UK using this platform or using platforms that are powered by League. Is this a pure play B2B company? Is there a B2C offer here on the horizon? So it's interesting. Um, so today we are a couple hundred million raised and now close to tens of millions being on the platform. So Congrats. like the pl- thank you. So it's really been an incredible, you know, few years for us. The platform has really taken off and recognize when we started, we actually started by saying, okay, we're going to start building this platform, but we got to get people using it first. Let's offer it to consumers. And So we had that direct-to-consumer experience early days, and we thought, okay, how do we get more scale faster? Because people trust brands for their healthcare, and we're not one of them. We're early, we're new, we're a bunch of people that don't know anything about healthcare, we're tech people. Let's go through their employer. And we offered a B2B kind of application sold through employers. And then we thought, okay, these employers... We really be great to get more of them faster. How do we do that? And how do we get just more people? How do we touch more people faster? I know. Let's go to the healthcare brands that people know and trust, that millions of people know and trust. Your local pharmacy, your insurance company or your health plan, your hospital system or your health provider network. Let's be the platform that they use And so that's really the part of the journey we're on right now. Could we offer a direct-to-consumer service at some point? We could have, and we did along the way, but the brand here matters, trust matters, and you cannot deliver just technology. There are some big themes related to B2C companies, um, also B2B companies, of course, but a lot of operators thinking about 
you know, how best to customize, how best to personalize, how best to build trust with their consumers. Um, given the direction that you've gone through these other local pharmacies, local brands that have brand equity that people trust already, do you feel like there is a bit of personalization or trust that's been lost in the process of using intermediaries to reach end consumers? So it's a great point. You know, on the trust piece, I mean, we are leveraging the brand equity and the trust that consumers have for the brands we partner with, for sure. That requires, uh, because they require it, a much higher bar on us for our approach to security, trust, and privacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember saying this way back, you know, many years ago, that the amount that League spends on security, privacy, compliance, compared to any other company that I've built, is just astronomical on a percentage basis. We've had to, on that dimension, play at a much higher level, let's say a lot sooner than we, I think we would have uh, as a direct-to-consumer company. Um, not saying that all direct-to-consumer company, uh, direct-to-consumer companies fly by the seat of their pants, but generally that stuff would have been pushed off until they had to. We didn't have that choice. Um, on personalization, and leveraging data to create that that kind of experience uh, that you know we believe people want and that they expect and that they get, frankly, from all other sectors of the economy. You know, I'd say that's a challenge because data, the data that's most important, comes direct for, directly from the consumer. And while we may get the new data, the old data may sit with our partners. And generally in legacy systems, generally not in the cloud, uh, and generally the work that's required to get that data liberated and useful and put into the you know next best action or recommendation engine AI, um, that just takes time. And so I'd say the promise of greater scale and leveraging you know brand equity and, and trust to get that scale um, requires playing a longer game. And, um, you know, that's what we've signed up for. Mm-hmm. Has the trajectory of AI benefited League in the past two, three years? Yeah, for sure. I, I'd say, you know, I, I've been on this AI train for a long time. Uh, back when I did my master's degree, honestly, nobody cared. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, even when we started the Vector Institute, I'd say there was interest uh, among corporates, but not the kind of interest we're seeing today, really. I mean, this is part of every dinner conversation I've had, I feel like, in the last year. Um, League has leveraged AI, and as we've kind of evolved into this platform model, the volume of data, I mean, talking about hundreds of billions of data points that we are recording and, and leveraging to deliver a personalized experience, really is based on AI and Mm -hmm. recommendation uh, models or machine learning models, which frankly, we continue to stack um, as there's no one super model. Um, And we're seeing that now as large language models uh, become more commonplace in commercial use. Um, You know, we will be stacking those as well. And um, I think this is only accelerating the adoption of AI and frankly, the positioning of League. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I want to switch gears for a moment. So you've raised 200 plus million so far for league. By 2012, though, you had three multi $100 million exits under your belt. Listeners would say, you know, of course, very easy for Mike and his team to raise capital. Um, I'm on my first startup. I'm launching something for the very first time and I'm bootstrapping. I've never gone out and raised capital before. And they're looking at the venture landscape and they're saying to themselves, hey, there's a lot of money simply sitting on the sidelines. And unless I'm an AI company, I'm going to have a really hard time raising my seed round. So what advice would you give that entrepreneur? So the first thing I would say is I've raised a lot of money and it's never, unfortunately for me, uh, felt easy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's always hard every fundraising round and, you know, the conditions each time I've had to go through it have been challenging in different ways. Um, I'd say um, we're in another, you know, unique set of circumstances today. I think it generally has caused late stage or growth stage companies uh, access to capital to dry up. Like there's just not many deals being done. I can tell you firsthand. Uh, There's a lot of investors that nod their heads and say nice things, but do nothing, um, which is very frustrating, uh, especially, uh, you know, especially if your company's doing great. It makes no sense. Uh, Feels upside down compared to, let's say, uh, a few years ago or the last 15 years. Um, Early stage, though, early stage checks are being written and not just to AI companies. We're seeing checks getting written. I don't know that we're back up to uh, kind of peak levels yet. Uh, well, I know we're not, but we're we're not at zero. Checks are being written. And of course, yes, it, if you're a company named .llm or .ai or genai, it seems like those like stupid checks are getting written again, mm-hmm. but every, every cycle has them. And I would say really just focus on, you know, the mission and the value prop and you know, finding that product market fit, uh, the money will come. You may have to be more creative. I may have to endure uh, a bit longer, be a bit more resilient, but good money and smart money finds good companies. Um, it's always been true. And I think uh, despite this air pocket, it'll be, it'll be true again. That seems to be a truism that, that good money finds good companies. Um, what about on the founder side, what do folks look for? And you've done some angel investing yourself, so you can answer this question directly, I'm sure. But what do investors look for from the founder in terms of, you know, personality type, character traits, et cetera? You know, I, I would say on this one, um, and maybe it's just a reflection of what I've, what I've focused on and, and maybe what me and my core team we've kind of been through, we are relentless and there is no shitstorm that we haven't seen that we aren't willing to adapt to. And in my experience investing, you know, as an angel investor, I have seen, I'll put people into two buckets and this is a grand oversimplification. It's probably not fair, Uh, but I've seen people that just give up in the face of, it getting hard. And I've seen people that you'd be shocked at how hard it is for them, yet they dig in and they work the problem and they figure it out 
They are relentless. And so I think in the early stages, early to mid even, uh, that is a quality that I look for. And I'm pretty sure most investors look for, you know, are, are these people, is this founding team going to adapt? Are they going to be resilient? Are they going to work with a beginner's mind? I've grown, I don't know what the eight year Kager is. Um, let's say it's about 160, 170%, something like that, uh, over eight years. So that's growing at on average, double or better year on year for eight years. Pretty awesome. I have missed almost every single plan that I've ever put together. Hmm. So you want to find entrepreneurs that stick with it in the face of danger, tough times, they dig in and they figure it out versus turtle. Just to clarify for listeners, Kager is compound annual growth rate. Right. Mike, assuming that founders agree with what you're saying, but they think to themselves, look, I'm pitching into a Zoom call with investors around the table that I have 20 minutes with. How can I showcase, you know, grit or resilience or how can I display confidence in that way in just 20 minutes? Yeah, you know, I think the art of storytelling is what it comes down to, right? I mean, I think if you're getting through a pitch deck and 15 minutes and you got a couple of questions, uh, you're not really going to display, you know, grit or resiliency or, or adaptability. But a story like how on the day before your birthday, your largest customer that signed a contract and is paying you gobs and gobs of money has an emergency board meeting and then they call you and then they tell you that they have to press pause on your contract and you just tell the story about what you did next and how you work the problem that speaks volumes So storytelling is a pretty important part of the CEO or founder's job, especially in fundraising. The pitch deck, you can always, you know, mail people the pitch deck. Tell the story. Highlight the pieces that you want to highlight. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. It's a follow-up question to something you said earlier. You know, way back when you when you had that call from Microsoft, you had advice from Ken who said, take that leap. Um, there are a lot of folks that I think are looking around for mentors, for advisors, uh, perhaps they're into their first startup and they wanna be a part of something. I know you have experience with Creative Destruction Lab, which is an incubator based here uh, out of the University of Toronto. What advice do you have for founders who wanna be a part of a larger community or an accelerator of some kind? I mean, I think these accelerators in particular, CDL uh, are incredible. And of course, there's only a handful that are, you know, that are at CDL's scale. You've got what Y Combinator does. You've got CDL and, you know, they have critical mass and some of the best mentors around are involved with them. So it doesn't take long to try and target through one of those uh, organizations, target a mentor you want to meet and get in front of. And I mean, if you couldn't already do it via LinkedIn or through friends of friends, um, 
you know, most entrepreneurs like me, if they get a couple of LinkedIn posts and maybe a text message from a friend, uh, eventually they're going to pick up and be welcoming of the chat. I mean, I learned that as an early, you know, early visitor and resident and, uh, you know, entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. I will always give that 20 minute coffee chat. Um, but I honestly, I think the accelerators are so much more of a, of a tool today, you know, signing up to one of them, just using them, frankly, to find out who the people are and then shorten your funnel, uh, and your time to get in front of them. Um, I think they're amazing tools for getting access to the best and most helpful mentors that have time because not everybody has time. And I think the signal you get from CDL or Y Combinator is these people are giving their time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's a great place to wrap. You know what? I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your continuing relations with the Musk brothers. If you continue to follow them or you're in touch with them, um, do you follow Elon from distance? Do you connect with him from time to time? What about Kimball? Any relationship there? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the last time I actually saw Elon or, you know, exchange messages with him was back in, I don't know, it's probably about five years ago. Hmm. Uh, I happened to be at Monaco for the, the Grand Prix. And I think Tesla was, uh, the lap car or the pace car or whatever that's called. Um, but no, I'd say I generally follow from afar these days between uh, running league and chairing the Perimeter Institute and Vector and three kids. I mean, I've got my uh, my hands full. And, um, you know, I, I go back to this conversation I had with Elon and Peter, uh, Peter Diamandis of the XPRIZE um, way back, I think it was like 2004. And I, I would have been at Critical Path still. And we were at this conference in um, San Diego at the Del Coronado, I think it was the hotel. And we had this chat late night over a cocktail um, about, you know, NASA, our government, they're just too slow and too expensive. There's got to be a better way to, you know, put satellites up into space and carry payloads. And this conversation, which of course led to SpaceX, was probably the one that I've been the most interested in. And the Daily, the New York Times podcast, mm-hmm. had this great episode last week about, you know, 4,500 Starlink satellites up circling the globe um, are more than anyone on the planet has. So we have a private company in SpaceX that has launched 4,500 and growing satellites, creating the biggest telecom network on the planet, which has been pivotal in the Ukraine war and a whole bunch of other examples. I mean, it's hard to learn about that and understand that arc over the last 20 years and not just be in absolute awe. Uh, So I'm, I'm definitely a follower. I, to be honest, I stay off of Twitter or X. So I'm not, uh, I'm not paying attention too much to what's going on there. And I haven't bought a Tesla yet, but maybe soon. (laughs) Um, Well, look, we're, we're inspired by what you're doing here with league, a startup number five, let's call it. You've had extraordinary success dating back to your time as zip two, of course, Michael, thanks so much for the time today. Really enjoyed it. Hey, great to be with you. Thank you. 
That's Michael Sabinas, founder and CEO of League. Thanks so much for joining us today. Shopify Masters is produced by Gogo Zoger and Megan Coyle. Our engineers are Matthew Schwartz and Miku Betlam. Benjamin Gottlieb is our supervising producer, and I'm your host, Adam Levinter. I'll catch you next week for another episode. Welcome to Tuning In To Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning In To Sound Wellbeing today. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid.